0: Hi, Mike. You know what's crazy is I just put new batteries in this uh, recorder, and it looks like it's going to die again. Oh, that's not cool. <laughs> yeah. We better odd. make this
1: quick. Uh, Quizno. You um, remember Quiznos? <laughs> I was like, where are we going with this? Are we going to start talking about sandwiches right now? Well, Quiznos had those, that horseradish sauce, and their subs, like they made it seem like it was the
0: healthy thing. Oh. And it was like eating a 12-inch... Um...
1: <laughs> Uh, the most unhealthiest thing you put in your body. A 12-inch most unhealthiest thing you can put in your body. Got this it. podcast is sponsored by Quiznos. <laughs> <laughs> I don't just think, kidding, no. I don't think Quiznos exists anymore. <laughs>
0: don't sue us. Um, funny. So, yeah, this is our podcast spot. So we are sponsored um, by the following sponsor companies, Black Powder Red Earth. Um, Black Powder Red Earth is the the new graphic novel by Echelon. Um, If you guys haven't seen it, it's been all over our social media, so shame on you for not looking. Um, BlackPotterRedEarth.com, you can pick up a graphic novel that uh, follows government contractors behind enemy lines. (laughs) I think I saw the last last, uh, uh, issue, and I could have swore the dude that was the main character was um, made after you after me uh, yeah absolutely
1: he looked <laughs> was he dumpy like, and stupid <laughs> yeah that's why exactly he was yeah. he was dumpy. i know where this is going i'm gonna cut you off at the pass yeah. so yeah there's Actually, a train he's probably going. jacked and handsome and had a, a beautiful beard that so. was me that was it probably character. was me <laughs> black powder red earth <laughs> yeah.
0: um check him out also this uh, podcast is sponsored by us night vision
1: U.S. Night Vision. So we've been partnering with U.S. Night Vision for a while now. They make great uh, night vision equipment. You can actually go on their website, usnightvision.com. You can use the code FIELDCRAFT and get 10% off of your order. If you've ever purchased a pair of night vision, you'd know that uh, they get a little bit expensive. So any discounts are going to help. They also make a laser for your rifle uh, that is extremely competitive in the market. And Mike and I have actually had the ability to go out and test that stuff with those guys there, and we were pretty impressed with it. So check out U.S. Night Vision. Wow, you sound proper, son. (laughs) Like Casey Kasem. (laughs) (laughs) I'll call you Casey Kasem. (laughs) All
0: right. Uh, Let's not go (laughs) there. This podcast is also sponsored by Falcon Tires. Falcon Tires. Look, I'm running the Wild Peak. This is how we work they want to come to us and they want us to test stuff and uh, we want to do a sponsorship. And part of that deal is we, we test and evaluate things before we represent them. And I tested the Falcon, um, you wild peak MT. MTs yeah. do the best tire. I've tried every single tire. I've had every tire on three different sets in the 87,000 miles in the year that I've owned the, my runner and I've tested them all. Um, we actually just did, um, the mud test, And because it's mud terrain, it excelled and did really well. Super impressed by those tires. I run 285, 70, 17s. Recommend 100%, without a doubt, the uh, Falcon uh, tire brand.
1: You're running the, what is it? Yeah, it's the AT3, which is our all-terrain tire. And I'm also running 285, 70, 17s. And I have been thoroughly impressed with my tires as well. I think of note on that particular tire, that tire ran the king of hammers race and survive, which is pretty awesome because, uh, they're street legal as well or whatever. So they make them, you know, or they're DOT approved or whatever that, that thing is. Um, but anyways, I thought it was pretty impressive. Yeah. Those tires ran king of hammers and survived.
0: Yeah. They're awesome tires. Check them out. Falcon tires. Also, uh the podcast is sponsored by Truck Vault. I have a Truck Vault system that is the special operations headquarters.
1: Oh this is my favorite. I
0: love the whiteboard <laughs> in it. I like mock that thing up and I give orders. You put to your do.
1: hands on your hips like a sergeant major yep. would and you're I, like pick up that cigarette butt.
0: I have that little stick thing that you slap on the whiteboard. <laughs> it, for no reason. I just have one of those. And I <laughs> it's awesome. It's your it's, command pointer. <laughs> it is. Um I, I like it because it for once now I could travel. Uh, with something that's embedded in my vehicle that conceals and locks all my belongings. Yeah. And I won't tell you what I have in my lockable boxes um, because it's a secret. <laughs> but Truck Vault um, also does 15% off all active LE, fire, EMS, first responders, um, active military. So if you're interested, check out Truck Vault, truckvault.com. Ow. I guess something on my the eye. <laughs> These contacts suck <laughs> also um you know i'm just throwing a shout out to our buddy tom saturday uh he just wrote a book called all secure with a a guy named steve jackson all secure one defo's operators uh fight from battlefield to the home front a really good book about the uh his history and, and tom we both know tom yeah. has a substantial history from mogadishu through the g and he's done a lot of things for our country and the the uh, least we could do is uh you know, learn from his experiences and pick up his book. The book is out now on Amazon. If you go on my account on Instagram at Mike.a.glover, it's in my story highlight. You guys can pick that book up, uh, support the military, but also support veterans who are doing great stuff for our country and learn from the, from their lives. I mean, this guy lived a, uh, uh, he continues to live, but he, he lived in the military, a amazing life and has a lot of experiences. So yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, this uh, podcast, we're just giving a shout out to Kilcliff because Killcliff has been supporting us. And um, you know they're big on the Navy Seal Foundation, which supports vets. But you said also, um, and and when we were talking about it, they support other veteran initiatives, right?
1: Right? They do. Yeah. so they work with tomahawk charitable and and some other organizations which are out there doing good things uh, for a lot of our veterans. So check out Kilcliff. Uh, we get to talk to Dacia who is one of their uh, their marketing reps, and she's behind the scenes doing a lot of cool things, but definitely uh, out there doing good stuff in the community, and they make good drinks, so definitely check them out. Oh, man. You hear that? That's the sound of a Triarch
0: pistol. Uh, Triarch Systems actually out of Mansfield, Texas. Um, we run – we get asked all the time. It's the most often que- uh, asked question, yeah. uh, which is what kind of setups are you guys running? So I run a Glock 43 from Triarch, also my full size for overt carry, also kind of my winter carry, and the gun that I teach with is a Triarch 17C. Um, and you run the Glock 19, right? That's correct. Yep. So what I like about Triarc is their custom guns aren't overly done, like a lot of custom gun companies where a lot of the things on them aren't made for utility. Uh, these guns are made to run and they're made um, to, to protect yourself. And I like that Glock 43, that's what you just heard just now, you couldn't tell. <laughs> triarc um systems.com it's t-r-i-r-a-r-c Triarch.
1: yeah Triarch. Triarc. t-r-i-a-r-c triarc.com so, arc.com <laughs> all right thanks guys uh, i don't know you got anything else no that's it we're rolling into this podcast cool beans hey guys welcome back to the
0: Phil craft survival podcast i'm your host mike and i'm here in the studio solo today we'll I'm not solo. i don't have my co-host Kurt. He's next door doing some work. Uh but I'm actually here with a guest today uh from the Veteran Affairs. And I guess I can call you from veter- Veteran Affairs. Sure. That's legit. Yeah. Um I got Jeff Hogan. Uh Jeff Hogan is a uh he's in his residency for psychology at the Veteran Affairs here in Prescott, Arizona. And uh Thanks for coming to the podcast, man.
2: Hey, thanks. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me down here.
0: Now, we, you know, we, we started talking on social media and, uh, you know, obviously have been following us and kind of we're here, we're local, with some of the veteran initiatives that we've been uh, doing with veterans and advocacy for vets. And, you know, we've been diagnosed with PTSD, both me and Kurt, and it's something that we don't hide. I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is. Um, but we're big on resourcing – um, you know the understanding one of what PTSD is uh, psychologically, but what it means for uh, civilians who really don't understand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, we uh, are big on uh, education because there's a lot of miseducation uh, out there in the interwebs on PTSD, on suicide rates, on a whole bunch of things. In fact, I, I recently I saw uh, the biggest nonprofit scams and. 90% of them were related to uh, taking advantage of veterans. Um, so, you know, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, we'll start it off, but tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of how you get to the point where you're you're at now at your residency in Prescott.
2: Yeah, so um, I was actually in the Coast Guard and um, around 97 and saw that they had a dive program. When I went into the dive program, I uh, actually, they used to send uh, Coast Guard divers to EOD, when I went to E, in when, when I went into EOD, I actually found out that, geez, I probably should have picked a different service. But hey, you know I made the best of it, and uh, I got to do some pretty cool stuff while I was in.
0: So you're um, EOD guy in the Coast Guard. Yeah, That's pretty cool. I'm, it
2: you know it, it was great, Mike. Um, I got to do some really cool stuff. I got to um, you know uh, do the first. Um, recompression of a stricken diver at altitude in a portable hyperbaric chamber because of it. Um, I, I got to do some really cool stuff, but um, and then I got hurt pretty bad. Uh, again, I like like you guys. I also got a PTSD diagnosis, and I have my you know reconstructed shoulder and wrist, etc. Um, but I, so I had to get out because I couldn't continue doing the job that I did and uh, went back to school. I had considered going to med school, um, but I, ta- I worked with a fantastic physician at the uh, EOD Mobile Unit 5 out in Guam. And he really, while I was, uh, you know, I was the medic on the team, while we were working with the indigenous peoples out there doing some medical relief, um, hygiene, et cetera, he really kind of had me step back and look at what, we were doing for the people were our medical interventions really significant or were the relationships that we were building with those people and how that affected their health
0: overall huge impact
2: it was huge it it really kind of changed my my perspective on medicine and so when i got out i um i decided um i actually did a double major in uh Human biology, pre-medicine with an emphasis in uh, biochemistry and health psychology. I went and got my master's in clinical psych uh, with an emphasis in um, uh, neuroscience. And then I'm awesome. finishing. Awesome. I'm fin- yeah, 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 I'm finishing my Ph.D. I and then I kind of work for. Um, I work currently for uh, a couple of fire departments up in um, Seattle in both. Uh, South Seattle, kind of um, in Lacey and Olympia for uh, both internal therapy, training them on trauma, et cetera, um, as well as responding to crises. And I also work um, occasionally at Microsoft as a contractor for uh, neurobehavioral research and learning outcomes.
0: Wow, that's that's an impressive resume. And, you know, it stands out to me that you actually said uh, that you do, um, you work with the fire department. And not a lot of people understand this, and that's just you know part of the, uh, the reason we're doing this podcast is uh, first responders have a huge rate of post-traumatic stress, but also um, a lot of it goes undiagnosed because yeah. these guys don't have the mechanisms like the military does, uh, even despite its lacking in a lot of uh, areas, they don't have any mechanisms to support themselves besides... Um, you know their own communities they develop uh, within the organization, right?
2: Very much so. It's a, it's a totally different animals with with first responders because not only you know when you're in the field you do go through some sleep deprivation and you go through a lot of trauma exposure, etc. But for first responders, especially paramedics, even more so than everybody else, they go through sleep deprivation, but then they go through uh, extended wakefulness, which is something very different than just sleep deprivation. They also work in trauma and local trauma, and then they a lot of times they live in the same community communities that they have to like address people in their worst day possible. Yeah, so which isn't
0: common for Leo. Actually, they, a lot of them live displaced from their communities, but they actually paramedics you're saying more often live yeah uh, amongst them. So yeah, I, I we have paramedic and EMT fr- uh, friends, and I know a lot of them. I actually work with a nonprofit with a buddy of mine, Jared, and. Um, you see things that will will change your life, life, but that you can't get rid of. I mean, you know, I actually had a conversation with Jay from, um, from Axis. He's a buddy of ours and, uh, he was talking about a child that he tried to rescue and was, was burned, uh, really bad. And, you know, I've seen at war children all the time and, you know, a lot of death to see an American child or, you know, the trauma that you see on the streets that you live in is completely different. It is. And they have to deal with that on a day-to-day
2: basis, And really horrible things, especially with, you know, when you see trauma adult to adult, that's one thing. Yeah. When you see trauma to the kids, um, uh, abuse to elderly, you have this more of an emotional connection to it. And a lot of times, sometimes you even, uh, there's a, it's not unheard of to for first responders to respond to emergencies with their own relatives including wow. their immediate family
0: yeah I've, I've actually heard that too jay actually said that he he uh, he went to a family member's um accident and it was a fatal accident and just getting that call i can't even imagine it's it's a tough job and it's a tough um you know realm to be in period and a lot of people don't understand it's you know we like to attack first responders and the media and everything else on the front end of their job. But residually, you don't understand the sacrifice they make long term. It's not just the, the shift where they go out and they're putting their lives in danger. It's the psychological impact over a long period of time that they see again and again and again. There is no decompression. You know, I, I say often that and the military is easy because we, there's an expectation that we're deploying to war and it's cyclic, right? We come out of war and we're on a down cycle and we're not exposed to anything. And most services are good at you know decompressing, giving family time. Well, you can't do that when you're a first responder. you're in it every day every day is is warfare it's crazy
2: yeah and and uh, unfortunately the whole the old adage the the Nietzsche saying that um, that which does not kill us makes us stronger unfortunately for trauma doesn't necessarily hold true. Um, For example, if I want to publish some research uh, in a peer-reviewed journal on traumatic stress and how that affects outcomes, either mental or physical health outcomes, if I don't control for previous stress exposure, I can't even get it published because that's how predictive of post-traumatic stress previous stress exposure is. So unfortunately, it seems that although we can uh, cope with and deal with, uh, trauma exposure, it doesn't necessarily just disappear. Like, and I know, you know, this, Yeah, it doesn't go away. You learn how to deal with it. And there, you know, we can talk about those types of things, but it's just, it it is something that it becomes a part of you. And it's, it's just something that we need to learn to deal with. You know,
0: you know, uh Hey, if you're on this live feed, just, uh, to mention, uh, we're, we're with Jeff Hogan. Jeff Hogan is a, uh, He's in his residency for a doctorate in psychology uh, clinical psychology and he's also a neuro um, neurology neurology expert behavior. Neurobehavior. Neurobehavior yeah. expert and so I want, I'm letting you guys know that because I'm going to ask you guys to ask some questions off the live feed because it, it's it's really engaging it's a lot of good information uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask is you know just in saying that uh, you know if you're exposed and you're going to ex, you're expecting that the person's going to be exposed to trauma, right? And by default, the career field of first responders, that's inevitable, right? right? Then how come on the back and and let's throw in the military in there yeah. as well? How come on the back end um it's like you have to prove the fact that you might have an issue and then the people who kind of finagle through um are known because they're like you know we have peers uh, me and kurt have peers that are like absolutely not i don't have issues and then th- the realization is uh after a period of time like oh i do have issues it's 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 not what we thought it was uh you know clinically outlined uh, at the time but then they start to surface so how come there's no guarantee on the back end like hey why are we not taking care of these guys off the bat
2: yeah, that's a that's a great question. First off, um, I think statistics would speak to only like forty eight percent of veterans actually seeking help in to, for the VA, et cetera, For PTSD, PTSD trauma exposure um, has uh, because of the way we cognitively take in information, our reality is based off of so many biases and memory errors, and the very nature of trauma. Um, sort of affects the way we remember things. We fracture things. Um, uh, d- we have different uh, tons of different types of memory: autobiographical, episodic, and and we fracture the way we process trauma in order to protect ourselves. Uh, and then we forget certain things as a protective measure. Unfortunately, that fracturing of memory and Perception has a tendency to come back and haunt us later. And when we can't put things back together, um, either through talking about it or sometimes we just, you know, we experience trauma and we kind of heal beyond it and we move past it, sometimes we can't. And a lot about trauma is that sort of residual memory that we can't quite put things back together. Like, I don't remember this, I can't remember this, or I can't remember this person I was with when this you know, when this bomb went off, or I can't remember what I did in this instance when I was plugging holes in this dude that was unconscious. And a lot about trauma has to do with that memory that, that we can't quite put it together. And sometimes those effects don't even come up for six months plus.
0: Yeah, it's the key word that stood out to me because I was thinking it is uh, this fragmentation of how your brain works. Because I've noticed it in myself, like I have all. I often say, like, oh yeah, none of these things really affect me, and then out of nowhere, something will surface where it will something will trigger a memory where it's not necessarily a traumatic uh, memory, but there's some kind of emotional value there, and and I don't know. I don't know the specific nature of how that works, and maybe you can explain it, but like yeah. you know maybe it is anxiety or some kind of uh anxiousness in me, but it doesn't create that kind of response and so uh what I've realized is it's like a flashback, and then there's some kind of connection there, and I don't know what it is. it's happened to me um sleeping, it's happened to me wide awake, and the response varies, but what i've what I've uh, understood about it is it, it's, it's not always trauma, but it's always kind of like a, uh, an emotional connection that was impactful.
2: Yeah. So a lot of those memories have to do with, in order to create a memory and think like you, if we pull yourself back into grade school, um, and when you were sitting in class, if you didn't really care about what you were, uh, learning, you're actually not going to retain those memories very much. There has to be some sort of emotional content to the stimulus that you take in or else you don't actually move that sort of memory from your hypothalamus to your frontal lobe and then back into long-term storage. So when trauma hits, um, you know that hypervigilance you feel when you know you're active, like this is, this is going down, I know I need to pay attention you're already, you're hypervigilant. There's an emotional uh, context right there. And then when uh, trauma hits, there is a mesolimbic activation. So that sort of middle area of your brain that that sort of facilitates the transportation from short-term to long-term memory. And so when you get cues, triggers, it's, um, I think cues is a better word, um, for things that remind you of the experiences that you've had that have had an emo, uh, an intense emotional content that brings about a sort of physiological response, right? Your heart rate might increase. You might sweat a little bit. Um, uh, the hair on the back of your neck might stand up. So you are cued to move. Either, either move towards or move away one or the other. My guess is you're probably gonna move to towards because you are who you are. Um, but that is that sort of context, that emotional context is super important because your memory of it is fragmented because of either uh, unconscious um, repression or uh, memory errors and biases, but that's that sort of fracturing, but the emotional content is there. So when you have that thought process and your emotional process, doesn't line up, that's what causes that sort of tension.
0: Yeah. So it's like, you know, I think of it like as, uh, you know, when, when that stimulus happens, it's like an elevated consciousness. And when you're even in special operations, it's, it's frequent, right? Cause you're operating, you're doing a whole bunch of, of, of physical things. I've, I've actually had it happen on an airplane before and I've never been scared of airplanes. I've jumped out of airplanes really my whole career. And Never really had issues, and I was on a commercial plane, and 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 this is part, partly a question. I noticed that I had the thought, and then it, it created this physiological response where I was, I almost wanted, like you said, I wanted to run and fight or flight, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I couldn't move because I was in my chair, and I couldn't get out, get out of it. So I felt like all the chemicals that were affecting me uh, physio- physically um, and since I couldn't use that chemical resource to as an outlet to physically unwind it, um, it created this this high level of anxiety. It was almost like a panic attack, yeah. and that's the only thing I, I can equate it to. But when I when I thought about it, I was like, "What's happening here? I don't know." And I had like IBS issues, and I had you know I was just I was basically freaking out. And I, I didn't know how to, di- how to manage it. And I started, the only thing I did, uh, knew to do was uh, I had heard a technique. I, I started doing a breathing technique and it didn't work. And then I heard somewhere, and I can't remember where, there's this technique where you basically flex your thighs or you flex a muscle. And as you flex it, you flex it really tight. And then as you're exhaling, you basically relax the muscle and let it breathe through the uh, exhalation. And there's a chemical... I guess that is released and probably, um, maybe, and, or the, uh, the, you know, the conscious thinking of breathing and calming yourself, uh, it got me through it, but it just, it's bizarre to me how that happens.
2: Yeah. I mean, let's be, how many years did you have in Mike?
0: Uh, I did 18 total. Okay. So
2: you got 18 years at operating at the, at some of the highest volumes possible. And the reality is you've just got a ton of stress exposure and The thing is, is that if I had to ask you back for 18 years, explain to me all the traumatic events you've been exposed to, there's no way you could separate all those, right?
0: and I've been asked at VA, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, right?
2: It doesn't work that way, Um, and a lot of clinicians have trouble with that, but most of them understand. Um, And when you have that sort of general response, um, your sort of panic attack. And we have actually three responses to overwhelming stress. One is fight or flight. Um, the other one is um, fight or free or freeze or fright. So occasionally when we become overwhelmed neurologically, and, and a lot of first responders will see this, when people are exposed to extreme trauma, a lot of times they'll almost go completely catatonic. Like it's, it's, kids do this a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. And they'll just like, like... paralyzed. Yeah, they'll get paralyzed. And what you described, what you were doing there is sort of a form of what we call PMR or uh, progressive muscle relaxation. Because yeah. especially for physical people, we carry our trauma in our body, and our muscular. I've curve. heard
0: that before. I've heard a yoga practitioner say that when you do certain moves... It would actually expose some of the trauma because of the physical movement. Oh yeah, it's weird.
2: Yeah, we carry it in our physiological uh, sort of apparatus, and so when you sort of did that 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 flexion, and we kind of typically in a, in a therapeutic setting, we might go from jawline to toes. Um, when we clench, we don't know how how tight we are, right? We just yeah. kind of go about our lives. We don't know uh, like our traps how 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 um, flexed we are. And so when we do that, we're kind of pulling all our muscles in, in individual rotations up to their maximum flexion, and then we we're purposely dropping them to maximum extension. And that helps us sort of calm the breathing down and, oh, and rela- okay. full reaction. Because walking here, we don't know how tense we are, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And so that's a sort of progressive muscle relaxation. You just did it in an acute sense.
0: Wow, what, so what is that you said? Freeze or, it was fight or flight, freeze or flight. Is there a third one? Freeze
2: or flight, and there is one. And it, that is called tend and befriend
0: tend and befriend.
2: Yep. So a lot of times, uh, I'll give you an example. I had a paramedic one time, um, re- tell me about a story. Um, they responded to a call where a six month old was non-responsive. Yeah. And when he, when they got there, um, it was pretty clear that the six months old was, was, had deceased, um, and, well, but you're, you're going to work, work them up regardless because it's a six month old and it yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. You're going to work them up. Unfortunate, and when they got there, the mom, the mother who had called the paramedics um, originally was so concerned with making sure the medics had coffee. She wasn't ready to deal with the reality, what's going on with her child, that she was, hey, there's a bit of a denial right there, right? And then there's a bit of an avoidance uh, behavior, like I'm just going to tend to the paramedics who are tending to my... Is
0: it a coping mechanism? Like it's almost like you're disillusioned or you're uh, in denial? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely.
2: And and some people our first reaction is to be very, very judgmental and angry, like, dude, that's your kid. What are you doing? And, you know, some in extreme traumatic cases, sometimes you just cannot physically and neurologically deal with that problem. And so you deal with something you can.
0: Wow. So is is the tendon befriend associated with uh the timing of a stressful event or a traumatic event? Like is there a is there maybe a phase that you can go through, fight or flight, freeze or flight, and then be tend and befriend through the entire process, or is the... Is it just, it's one or the other?
2: So it's not necessarily a, a black and white thing, and everybody has not only biological vulnerabilities, right? We inherit um, some genetic predisposition to vulnerability to trauma, most um, particularly with our mother. If our mother has been exposed to trauma, we have a tendency to be a little bit more vulnerable than those who haven't. Yeah. Um, and then we have, you know, all these different factors affect how much sleep did you have that day? How much food have you had? uh who's there with you, right? We never really respond. Either first responders or military, we're typically not solo. So who you have with you at the time matters. Um, do you also have a child that's about that age? Does the child remind you of, like all of these things add up to this, this really complicated interaction. And um, it depends. It just, it's so, it's so. It's complex. Variable. There's
0: it, lots of variables. It is. Well, you know, something that's, um, something for me you know i'm I'm big on the fact that I believe trauma is a part of life sure. and so there's a there's a um, I don't know if you could say it's it's kind of a stereotype where the military is associated with uh, PTSD in a negative way meaning um, you know somebody could go to you and say hey what'd you do for a living and I, I actually went through this i I uh, applied for a security position. I had a a bachelor's degree in um, crisis response Mm -hmm. and homeland security. And I I applied with another guy and they said I was very competitive. And he got the job. And and looking back on both of our resumes, I got his resume from one of the guys for some reason, but compared uh, to his experience, I had a lot more experience. And so um, one of the guys told me uh, offline, basically, uh, I was too much. And what he meant was the key words that were included in my resume was like sniper, you know, special operations, you know, tactical, whatever, tactician, um, and and so all these schools that were meant to set me up for success in the military set me up for failure in the end. And so you know, looking at that, you know, I don't like I don't like to take the role of the victim. You know, trauma for me is something that everybody goes through, and it almost seems as if we look at it that way. Everybody's managing it constantly, mm-hmm. and so instead of having this victim mentality and 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 uh, looking at us as broken, what I've realized is every single person, in some form or fashion, is broken. But I don't look at it as broken in a jigsaw puzzle where you need to you know necessarily have to mesh pieces together to come up with a solution. We're just all in a uh, you know walking form of. Um, managing stress and it just happens. I mean, what's your experience with working with veterans and people in general? Is that something that I mean, is there people that are um, you know we talk about vulnerabilities? Is there people that are immune to it? So I don't. Um, I, it's
2: it, it, from a scientist perspective, it's difficult to talk in, in in definitives. But Mike, I love the way you put that. Um, we're all dealing with trauma in one way or the other. I mean, there's tons of statistics that state that. Y- at some point in your life, you're going to lose somebody who care, who you care yeah. dearly about, right? Yeah. That's trauma. Yeah, like straight yeah. up. Some of us experience more than others, but at some point we will deal with trauma and trauma has a tendency to a challenge, our own identity. Um, you know, it, it challenges our resilience. And although I'm a trauma specialist, I really, really approach things from res- resiliency and grit perspective. And so uh, Mike, even guys like you and Kurt, I know, I know that, statistically speaking, I know that you and first responders and in, the, in general, the military is going to be more resilient than others, not just because of who they are, but how they operate. They operate in groups. Nobody is, out in, you know, yeah. nobody is out in a vacuum. And group resilience is always stronger than individual resilience. Having said that, at some point, it's just biology that your resilience will become overwhelmed, that you will become um, overwhelmed and your resilience will wear out, right? If you think of your resilience as a sort of curve, you will at some point over pass by that curve. What we don't talk about enough is, um, and, but I do see it occasionally as post-traumatic growth, right? There is growth to be found in trauma. Um, but what I do know from a scientific perspective is that, you cannot grow unless your resilience has been overwhelmed. But post-traumatic growth is sort of that, um, you know, I experienced trauma. This is horrible. But now I know who my friends really are. Now I know that trauma exposure will not kill me or very just if we want to be pragmatic. And now I'm just glad it wasn't me this time. Yeah. Just, you know, just from a very pragmatic, you know, perspective. But it's it's again it's simple but complex right yeah because you are resilient like there is
0: resiliency a coping mechanism though I mean is there such thing as resiliency I mean, is there it, it just seems like uh resiliency in, in in different forms is a way of basically you know subsiding stress or just you know ma- you know navigating stress but the reality is it's there
2: It is, Um, and so uh, that's a great question. Resiliency is sort of that, when we uh, operational define it, it, it is sort of that the ability to adapt and or... Um, even thrive in an adverse environment. And um, although resiliency in a a lot of scientific journals and clinical work has kind of that general uh, statement, we can actually break it up into like physiological resilience, cognitive resilience, behavioral, affective, interpersonal, and even spiritual resilience. So these things are absolutely right what you said. there are coping mechanisms that we do know are effective at dealing with traumatic stress. So, again, basic statement, but we can break it down into some, into some very, very specific elements.
0: I like that. You, you know, uh, something that's, that's, that always stands out to me is resiliency. And you talk about post-traumatic growth. Let's talk about that a little bit because, yeah. um, you know, when we teach mindset, we always talk about the fact that the worst moments in our lives and training, really in life, um, in combat that we've experienced have brought about the most growth. And though tragic a uh, situation uh, on the backside of that, you know, I just um, I just interviewed a, a father, Steve Hogan, who who lost his son. Um, and he lost his son in Afghanistan, and he was killed in combat. And he goes through this entire period of, you know, all these different phases of being broken. Mm-hmm. And then through that, you know, he's still finding it, but he's, he's becoming resilient in the fact that he's utilizing that, bad situation that tragic situation and trying to make something good out of it and empowering people and helping people and so what i've always seen is unless you're broken you know in whatever form factor it is um you're not going to grow as a person you know whether that's a spiritual growth or you know a, a mindset growth it, it just won't happen and, and in fact the people that i've seen in civilian life that i've dealt with and friends and and spouses um, that really had the most stagnant growth, and they really weren't going anywhere, was because they've never really faced, uh, uh, you know, problem sets that that made them more resilient. Absolutely. I mean, think about think about training. Think about
2: uh, uh, when you started SF. Would think about all those things is a is a progressive breaking you down, yep. exposing you uh, gradually to more and more stress. And but there's also a learning mechanism, like right. No, this didn't break me. I'm gonna get back up tomorrow and do it again. Um, So yeah, the the even on a on a biological level, an organism will not adapt unless you stress it out. And if like really, oh yeah, why would it? Right? Yeah, yeah. Why does it adapt? We we want to be homeostatic and easy. Yeah. That's that's that's, we're kind of wired to move towards the easy part, right? But when you talk about that mindset that, uh, no, I actually need to get out and stress myself. I need to feel that stress in order to learn how to adapt, because your body will adapt. Um, But we don't want to, it's uncomfortable, it's painful. Uh, Growth and adaptation requires a stressor. Um, So, you know, it's it's one of those double-edged swords where you need the stress to get better get stronger and there's that growth element right That what i was talking about need you actually need to get your resilience need to break that needs to break down um to experience post-traumatic growth um and you know um i i don't know exactly the relationship between you and kurt but if you were in distress if you know that you can go to Kurt without, with no questions asked or your girlfriend, right? There's, there's a resilience there. There's help seeking behavior, which is from a mathematical perspective, from a, from a scientific perspective, one of the greatest contributors to resilience. Like f- as a, as a clinician, I want you to try to, t- to deal with it. But when there comes a point to where, you know what, I, th- I think I need help and let me check in. Awesome that's great. You just, you just sort of took that realization and made your consciousness a lot larger than just yourself.
0: Okay. Is that, uh, you know, I've read the, I'm sure you read this study of the, the 75 year study where they did with people and where they studied them from children to into their uh, senior uh, years and assess basically, um, the key to happiness and what it was, you know, that, there's a whole bunch of media outlets that took this over, but uh, there's a TED Talks about it, uh, and it, it it basically says in a nutshell that the key to happiness is, is people and being integrated in social environments where you can grow with people. And the first thing I did uh, when I got out of the military is I isolated myself because I'm like, I hate people. I can't deal with the civilian world. Uh, c- civilian people aren't the same as me. And then I uh, basically isolated myself in the mountains of nowhere and... And thought that was the answer, and then realized trying to grow and become a better person, which I wanted to do, in isolation, uh, it wasn't advantageous, obviously. And you know, it took it took a lot of people, um, a lot of, of a lot of trial and tribulation to pull me out of that, where I basically came out of my shell and was like, oh, now I'm comfortable with being uh, around people, and the more people I interact, it's still t- difficult, and I, I you know, I, I joke with Kurt, and he's like the, uh, you know, he's like the the voice box for Phil Kraft because I like to do it on this, but I don't like to do necessarily the interaction with a lot of people. I'm not a socialite like Curtis. Um, so the more I did that, the happier I became, and the and it, I don't know, it the connection to people was what made me almost come out of that that difficult situation. I could see completely that, you know, the first time you raise your hand, you say I have a problem. A huge part of that is the connection that you have with other people sharing um, and uh, I don't know if it's sharing the burden, but uh, communicating and opening this this closed box that you've been hiding inside your soul or, or yourself.
2: Yeah, I I totally agree. And you kind of hit on one of the, mo- the biggest difficulties with both veterans and first responders is that uh, there is that belief that, um, well... It's not a belief, but it's a reality, but let me put it in context that people outside this community can't understand what I've been through. That's true. However, we have a tendency to draw these lines in the sand between Mm -hmm. us and them. Yep. And um, when you've been exposed to trauma, especially when you've been exposed to trauma and you have sleep deprivation on board and extended wakefulness, There is something that happens and your brain starts to express this thing called a tau protein. And that tau how do do you spell that? T A A U.
0: T A A U. A U. Wow. Okay. Protein.
2: Tau protein. Yep. And what it does is it interrupts memory formation. And one of these things that I see in a lot, especially in paramedics, is I can go to them and say, Hey, tell me about some of the calls you went on last week. They won't remember most of them.
0: Really? Yeah. And so this happens a lot with vets as well. Is this where they say, oh, it's just a job. And so then everything that's masked in that job quotations is forgotten because oh, it's part of the job. Totally. And then
2: physiologically that that protein is actually interrupting memory formation. Wow. So they really will forget. The problem is is that that tau protein doesn't doesn't discriminate between negative and positive memories. And so you see all this negative stuff right people uh sig- seriously wounded or dead or lost, but all of a sudden you also forget the positive memories, the, the uh, satisfaction with seeing children um, grow and, and enjoy themselves, your friends and family grow and enjoy themselves, and then the world takes on a negative tint. And so wow. when you're hurt, yeah. right? Like, let's say if I cut your arm, the first thing you're gonna do is pull back. Well, psychologically, you're not any different. When you're hurt, you're gonna pull back. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we are such social creatures. With our, We have this um, system in our brain called the mirror neuron system, and we actually share emotional content. Like, if you get injured, I see you get injured, I will replay your injury just several milliseconds after you're injured in my own brain as if it's happening to me, mm-hmm. which is why, you and know, that's where empathy comes from. Absolutely. Because you feel it, yeah. Absolutely. Cause we're social a, and even then, like if you stuck your hand in a fire, if you think about it, right, you're going to have this afferent. So arriving uh, reaction to that fire, pull your hand back and that signal will go up and, and innervate your trigeminal nerve and you'll yell. Why the hell do you yell? you yell to tell me either, A, there's something that you either need to go after or get away from, and then B, then you have this sort of uh, neurological cascade of painkillers and, and, and all the other like immune system response, right? Well, I have a very similar reaction when I see you. And so masking your pain is not effective. Oh my
0: God, that's mind blowing. So you're, you're saying that so you're saying that even like when you you use the analogy of being burned, you're burned, and then there's this communication that takes place, but it's not meant for me. You're not yelling for yourself; you're yelling right. for other beings around you, other organisms, organisms, organisms around you to be to help you or to yeah. assist to move assist, away. Yep. To move away. It's a oh man, that's insane. I, and yeah, it just makes sense to me, like how you're saying it because there's a, there's a lot of primal tie-ins. Um and, and when you take that example, a physical example, and then you apply it to what we do in our minds, we do the same thing. We mask and then we you know compress and suppress and get rid of all these thoughts. And you know, that tau protein, what's the purpose of that? Is the purpose to is is the purpose to mask trauma overall and then by default we're actually actually shielding the good memories?
2: So that's a great question.
0: Um, I wanna be
2: clear with the neuroscience associated with trauma. Neuroscience is a really, really young science and currently right now it's really undersampled, underpowered and understratified. So we're really just starting to learn about the brain and how, especially in context of trauma, how it reacts. But with those people compared, with trauma exposed people compared, especially with PTSD, compared to healthy controls, we see a, a deadening of the mirror neuron system as well as a frontal cortex so the what we call the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and that has a lot to do with emotion regulation and and emotional um so cognitive uh empathy um we see a swelling in the or uh, the uh, amygdala so your amygdala basically does threat not threat threat not threat and so it's just going threat 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 all the time and it's not controlling the stimulus that goes on around you and so it's in that tau protein um we don't know why right it's just we know that this is happening right now we don't know why but if you think about it um let's say you're let's say you lose you lose people and we all have um it is if i explain to you that your pain is my pain to some degree and especially the closer you are not only in physical proximity but also emotional proximity. If I lose you, that represents a wound to me, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so the more times you get wounded, the more times you learn other people are a vulnerability to me. And your brain starts to shut away from emotionally connecting to other people.
0: Oh. Cause you know what you know what the pain feels like. You you understand the process and you don't wanna you don't want that to happen again. It's that whole not letting people in thing, right? That's crazy, man. This is the uh,
2: way psychopaths are created as well.
0: Really, it's part of the, part of the uh, <laughs> I, yeah, that's insane, man. I mean, not insane, no, no, no. pun intended. No, 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 I get it. Um, so when, you know, th- there's something I was, I'm actually interested in when you're saying this, and I wonder if it's related. Um, when I talk to law enforcement officers who've been in shootings, mm. and I've been in a lot of shootings or in engagements with the enemy, and some of them very close proximity, And um, one of the things I teach in in stress mitigation, which is just tied to survival, I think, is staying conscious, you know, staying on that, what I I say is just to the forefront of your mind. You Mm -hmm. need to stay in that decision matrix and be conscious and aware because as soon as you go into the back of your mind and you become unconscious, uh, and my verbiage is not, you know, scientific, but when you become unconscious, you start to lose touch with uh, what's reality and you're in this primal mode where things are taking place and you're on autopilot. So you, you have, um, you're susceptible to making mistakes because there's nothing there uh, to keep you on the forefront of your mind. So the analogy I use is, hey, you're in a shooting and you have to make a decision during that shooting or maybe you see a good guy versus a bad guy and so you need to make a fine minute adjustment but you're in this primal mode where you're just breaking rounds. And I talk to a lot of law enforcement officers who've been in shootings and military guys who've been in shootings where they just don't remember, you know, the stress kicks off, the trauma kicks off. And then it's like, there's this blank spot in their mind where they go, I just kind of remember like a flash. And then there's things taking place and then they get snippets of that information. What's causing that?
2: So again, let, let me pull that back into resilience because I think we can address some of those things and kind of talk about that. I think that's a great example of um, resilience training. Um, and and you, you use the term mindset, but it's the same thing. So like if we talk about physiological resilience, for example, the U.S. Air Force did a fantastic research on what it looks like to be physiologically resilient. And... Um, what they did was basically they they put people they they, they measured their physiology at at um, homeostasis, and then they sprinted them on rowing machines for about three minutes at what is it homeostasis? Homeo- homeostasis?
0: Stasis? Just a sedated? Step.
2: Yep. Just. I'm just here, I'm just relaxed, Relax. Yep. No, tr- no stressors. No stress, I'm yep. just here. And then they sprinted them at 80% for about three minutes, and then they measured them afterwards, and the people that re- that calm themselves down the fastest, those are gonna be the most resilient. So think about that shooting scenario, yeah. right? You're gonna be elevated, because it's the threat response. You're gonna be elevated, and then there's all kinds of other things going through your mind, like legal ramifications, am I doing this right, all these... All these, it, it, am I well-trained enough,
0: yep. right? Am like, I gonna live? Yeah, am yep. I gonna
2: live? Is this guy gonna die? Am I gonna hit him? All these things pop off in your mind, but physiologically, you can't separate the mind from the body. Yep. And yep. so you're gonna have a physiological resilience, right? And then you have that cognitive resilience. That's sort of what you described as um, you, the your frontal cortex is going to be, the is one of the largest calorie burning Organs in your body at rest it burns about thirty percent. your re- consist about thirty percent of your resting metabolic rate, and so when you actually start to engage it, then you really start to use a lot of calories. And making decisions quickly requires a huge cognitive input. Which is very cal- calorie dependent. But if you're scared, if you're sitting there thinking, you're not confident in your skill set, you're not physiologically mm-hmm. resilient. And then we also talk about affective resilience or emotional resilience. If you're not able to sort of control your emotions, control your fear, which I think you probably also talk about quite a bit. Yeah. All um, again, if you as soon as you as soon as your hypothalamus takes over or your amygdala takes over. You're not able to abstract reasoning. That is just biology. You cannot abstract reason, and that's when you talk about with that memory formation. They can't remember because they were operating on freaking basically what we call an engram. Uh, muscle memory isn't a great term, but engram is sort of behavior pattern. So and, they're in the back of their heads. Yeah, don't. absolutely.
0: So that's that's interesting because um, what I've noticed is as I got in more gunfights in, in the in the war. Um, I would have that response, and I would go to the back of my mind, which is the what part of the mind? So you're when you're there,
2: you're really just talking about the midbrain. There, you're just you're just taught. You're just yep. it's called an engram. 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 Yep. And so that that's that behavior. What we some people call muscle memory, right? Because yeah. you drill over and over. Oh yeah, they call again. okay.
0: So that's the engram part of your brain. Yeah. The yep, midbrain. Yeah. Yeah. The midbrain. So you know when you're in that state, what I tell people is, hey, you're going to go to that state. Initially, that's um distinctly, even the best trained guys that are confronted with elevated states of danger, like imminent threats. You know, you could be a, you could be an operator and be running around an objective and yeah, there's a, a potential, a threat, but when that imminence, um, you know, makes itself presence and, th- and there's that moment where it's like, okay, there's a gun barrel, there's a gun and this, this is going to happen. You immediately shift back there. And what I tell people is you have to stay in the forefront of your mind. You got to, you have to it, you have to evolve through the gunfight, which you're not going to be there. You're going to be, you know, these large motor uh, motor skills are going to be taking place. You're going to work through it. But your eyes at some point, if you could fight through it in the recovery process, you'll start to see front sight focus. You'll start to see things that are happening and taking place. And then that's where you want to stay. You're like combating yourself because does your mind want to bring you to the midbrain? It's easier and and retain you
2: there. It's easier, right? It's it's way easier to operate just on engrams on behavior patterns. But what you're describing there is basically your emotion regulation, right? You're gonna get stressed. Accept yeah. that. Yep. I don't care who you are. You're gonna get stressed, but stop and realize. Stop for just a few seconds, if you can, when you can, and s- physically slow your breathing down. Yep. And move across your visual field, scan for threats. As you're doing so, reduce your stress and and move in a mechanical fashion.
0: That's that's amazing. I mean, we a little digression there, but I'm just I'm trying to pull all the knowledge. It's all out the, the doc. same stuff, yeah. man. It's, it's all the great. Same it's great. Um, yeah. um, so, you know, let's, let's talk about VA because, you know, your, your uh, expertise has led you to the VA and you're a veteran. So you have a unique, um, it, it is actually unique in some ways where um, you're the provider and you're a veteran and you're in the realm of uh, PTSD and mm-hmm. clinical psychology. So it's kind of full circle, you know, yeah. you're like, you're, you're the master at this point and you're there and you see a lot of things. What are some things that you're seeing that stand out to you about the system? Because I, I routinely talk about my experiences in the VA, and they haven't been very good. I've had some good instances, um, but for the most part, it's a poor experience. Um, what are some bullet points that have stood out to you? That some of that w- things that we talked about early on, early on in the conversation that that you see that are that are becoming issues.
2: Yeah, so um, if we take a look even at this sort of uh, the effects of of, uh, rural uh, mental health care and our veterans out here, um, it's a complex scenario. Um, And I don't mean to put it that way to sort of minimize um, uh, veteran uh, issues versus –
1: Anybody uh, else's
2: VA's issues, yeah, it's yeah. it's a difficult scenario, um, and so there have been absolutely instances where uh, veterans have failed to get definitive care at the VA. Sometimes it's been the VA fault. Sometimes it's 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 incumbent on the veteran. Yeah. Um, having said that, uh, working with, um, vets outside the VA and inside the VA, what I can tell you is that now that I have some experience that, um, all I can tell you is about Prescott, right? Um, but what I can tell you is that the VA, at least in the local sense, does everything they possibly can to do veteran centered care as, as, as. We have huge treatment teams that we all work together across medicine, uh, psychology, kinesiotherapy, nutrition. All these things are available. Um, we work really, really hard. The people that work there, no BS, Mike. They are minute to minute. These people work extremely hard Absolutely. every
0: day. Yeah, but, and, I, and I don't think it's a people problem. No. I, in, fact, I, in fact, now that... I don't think I've ever run into a bad person who works for the VA. It's a institutional problem, right? It's it's the the system, um, the organization, the lack of communication, um, which all belongs in the infrastructure. And there's you know, to me, and that's why I think there was a lot of people calling for you know the resignation for a lot of the people in the higher uh, ranks of the VA because um, it seemed like a leadership problem.
2: Yeah. And I don't disagree. Um, uh, for right now I'm fairly insulated with, uh, uh, from the sort of, um, bureaucracy that goes on in there. And I'm really thankful for that, which was a very big, um, uh, genesis point for me reaching out to you guys and saying, Hey, look, we have clinical approaches to these things and we need those. I mean, there's just no way to get around it, but there is an intermediary piece here where we have veterans that has, have successfully gone from, um, active duty and or reserve duty into civilian life and have not maintained that us and them attitude Absolutely, that not. we have started to, I'm a veteran. Yes. I'm also now a civilian and now I need to adapt to that lifestyle. I am not better than or worse than I am part of um, that. We need to start turn around and work with um, the VA as civilians, um, and especially me, like you you kind of mentioned, I'm in a unique spot because I've been boots on the ground and clinician, and now I'm in this rural community where we have an opportunity to sort of bridge the gap um, between clinical care and civilian integration and really a sort of holistic health approach. Because to be honest with you, looking at the way you and approach uh, field craft, you guys really adopt this sort of um, beginner mindset. Yes, we have expertise. Yes, we've uh, top-tier operators, but that doesn't mean we know everything. Yeah, That doesn't mean we can't learn at every opportunity that we are, we are there teaching people, whereas a lot of veteran groups I've seen really kind of take this mindset like we're the best. You Yeah, need to elitist
0: learn. mindset. Yeah, yeah.
2: and it's not, it's not helpful. It just serves to isolate you from everybody 100%. else. Yeah. And like we talked about how social we are right? And we need to, we need to integrate better and we need to turn back and help take care of our own.
0: Yeah. 100. I agree with everything you said. And I, you know, my whole thing is what I try to educate veterans on is the fact that let's not pretend that civilian life is easy or that civilians have it easy. In fact, being a civilian now, an official civilian, um, I I think personally, all of my time in the military was easy. Uh, you know, the discipline that's instilled in a regiment is not that difficult, and so all the things that I experienced were set up, uh, set me up for success in that in that venue. Now that I'm outside that venue, being in civilian world, it's like being a lone operator. I mean, you don't have any mechanisms to support you, and I, you know, part of me um, is sickened by what I see frequently at the VA of all, you know, and and we won't have to get in details about it, but the people who take advantage of the system that are the same people in the military that were not very good in the military. And then they get out and they abuse this system from, from people who really need help. And, you know, you know, when me and Kurt got out of the military, there was instances where we needed help and we sought that help, but there's guys and gals around us who need more help. And, they are the ones, especially with combat service, that have experienced severe trauma in every war, um, every foreign war, that need to be prioritized. As opposed, as opposed to you know, like I mentioned to you before the podcast, you know, somebody who tragically experiences trauma before the military. Yeah, I get it. You're poorly screened, and then you do two, three years in the army or the military, and then you come out, and then now you got 25 years of trauma that, that, that the VA has to manage. And part of the reason it's a bureaucracy and the part of the reason it's broken and dismantled is because they're overwhelmed. I mean, this is a healthcare system ran by the government that is overwhelmed with people coming to it, saying they're broken. And I've seen broken and 99% of the people that I see in the VA walking around are not broken. And you know, the whole, you know, it, you can't see the, what they're broken. I know what broken looks like. They're not broken. Cause I know most of their experiences. Um, what's, what are some of the things that you're doing now? Because I know you, you know, you, like you said, you're isolated, you're, um, doing your things. What are you guys doing on a daily basis to, to change things?
2: You know, so, um, with what you said, it's it from, uh, pulling back to the integration to civilian life, being easy or being hard, you know, in the military, a lot of times we operate on black and white principles. You're either ready or you're not, yep. you're either pet, you're either go or no go. Yep. You either are an asset or a liability because we have to be, you can't mess around. You can't, there aren't, there is no wiggle room there yep. where the civilian world is all wiggle room, right? Um, and so you need to learn how to deal with that distress and that variability regarding the VA. Um, if you look kind of on their website versus, you know, when I was doing my claim, you know, 12 years ago, um, the v- website was absolutely horrendous. Um, they've made a lot of improvements to accessibility. Um, they're starting telehubs for telemedicine and telehealth and telepsychology. Um, they're improving accessibility. They've, uh, integrated larger healthcare teams per veteran. Um, and even those people that you kind of Described as not broken, there is something going on. Yeah, absolutely. Residually, there's there's always something going on. And so, as, as general healthcare providers, we also need to take care of that. However, pragmatically speaking, the VA is extremely understaffed as far as mental health goes like 30%.
0: It's 30% understaffed. W- yeah.
2: It's so hard to find, um, licensed, uh, mental health care providers from social workers to psychologists and psychiatrists. It's just, it's, it, it's been a challenge this far. I'm not as far as the why that's, that's really, I don't know that yet, but it's, it, you're absolutely, absolutely right. It's, it's sort of, there's a staffing problem. Um, there's, um, access, there's a stigma associated with it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's complicated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing we could do to, ne- to fix it tonight. There's, it's just, no. I've, i you know, the whole VA, like that, I had an ambulance ride that we're supposed to pay for. And like, I'm just done. I'm done wasting energy and time and calories and sleepless nights worrying about something that I can't fix. So I'll just, I won't. Um, one of the things that you had uh, mentioned is your intern project, which is the uh, veteran enrichment center. And it's you, Dave, and Rosemary. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about this proposal because this is something that's 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 very interesting to me. Uh, it's a project that you're doing uh, for your internship. Um, tell me about it. So
2: we're looking to sort of convert a space on the VA or maybe outside, and make a center for veterans where we sort of in. in enrich and or emphasize the things that make us individuals that are other than our veteran experience, uh, be it arts, uh, music, uh, professional experience, um, job opportunities, uh, speaker series like I'd love for you and Kurt to come talk with veterans. Uh, we have we have in Prescott, we have a ton of vets here.
0: Really? Um, that I heard I it has per capita. It's got one of the most richest communities of of veterans in the United States. We just have a ton, and we have a ton
2: of really successful vets. I think there's a... veteran-run CrossFit here. I mean, we have a ton of really successful vets and them coming to sort of share how they sort of moved from vet life to civilian life and successfully did it. Um, so we aren't just the vet. We are the vet and we do these things. Um, and we sort of, the a lot of the vets expressed a sort of um, a desire for a place to go that wasn't necessarily clinical, but it's sort of a, a place that's comfortable for them to go to talk to other vets. Um, And we're really kind of looking into a mentorship program because a lot of, to be fair, when we talk about suicide and veterans, um, we are absolutely elevated over the general population. But when we take a a little bit more discreet look at the numbers, the the population that is at, at extreme risk are Vietnam veterans.
0: Vietnam veterans, yep. Right, and Absolutely. so um, well because they're getting they're in that bracket of age now, and I mean, I've seen them every day. It's difficult to to talk to them because they they just if there's so much trauma, there's so much pain, and they've been mismanaged for decades.
2: They have been, and so uh, for me, uh, if I take off my clinician hat on and put my vet hat on, I go, what are we doing? Like, wait a minute, we have a ton of opportunity. Like these, these Vietnam vets, they have a ton of experience and a ton of life um, lessons learned that we don't know about. And giving them a space to come and teach some of our younger vets and mentor them into how they got to where they got. Helping others increases purpose. Purpose increases resilience across the board.
0: That's that's well put and well stated. I mean, that's that that is it. I mean, there's there's a reason that me and Kurt are so passionate about Philcraft. It's because it's our purpose. And so when we wake up, we have the sense of purpose and the direction to move to meet that objective, which is it never goes away. And so for us, it's creating our own purpose and our own drive um, outside of the military. Where you know we found profound purpose in our mission. You know, with the guys. And so it's it's our closest really um you know enabler to to having a community of team guys around us and that's what we continue to do and what i've always told you know i interviewed a a vietnam vet who was a mac v sog special operations guy Mm -hmm. in vietnam and you know he came back from vietnam he was spit on like everybody else from the vietnam war and completely mistreated by the 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 civilian population and the government at the time and you know, he got through that, but he never had talked about his experiences. And one of the things that I've, you know, it's an initiative that, I, that I'm uh, pretty passionate about that I want to um, continue to do is communicating to veterans of war like the Vietnam War and getting their stories. Because, you know, the Mac v guy uh, Mac V saw a guy that I interviewed, he never talked about it. But when he did talk about it, um, extracting important things and lessons learned that um, we use and, you know, teaching civilians and law enforcement and military uh, and mindset and, you know, physical survival, um, it gave him a sense of purpose that he was doing something that was better um, than the experience he had when he came back from war. Because at the time when he was in the Vietnam War, he and his brothers knew they were doing something important. And then for the last 20, 30, 40 years, that entire experience has been suppressed because everybody's been saying, the Vietnam War was a bad thing. It's bad. It's bad. And then when you extract the goods out of it, they realize that they do have a purpose. They realize that um, their experiences um, aren't just for nothing. And uh, yeah, it's it's really important, man. I, this whole this whole project is it is it is it a part of your? Um, schooling as the project, or is this an initiative that you're trying to get embedded into the veteran system? So this
2: is actually an uh, an initiative that it is part of, and we're trying to make this a long-term sort of project Mm -hmm. that, yeah, the the doctoral um, cohort is going to start it, but we want it run by veterans, which is why we're having, you know, several vets come in and sort of give their feedback on what they think they need, what they want. Uh, We know uh, this, we are going to support with empirical data because I know that there are certain things in here that I know scientifically um, contribute to resilience. And and I'm not interested in just seeing vets eek by. I, I'm not interested in that. I want to see them flourish. And I do know that there are certain things that not only contribute to resilience, but also contribute to flourishing. And so these are some of the things that we sort of, as a team, we said, okay, this these are the things that we need, but we need to know what the vets at Prescott want, what we can do. Um, uh, and I think that's actually a broad application for what we can and cannot do. And so at some point, like you guys talk about self-reliance a lot. Um, and resilience starts here, right? Like we can't, I can't control the variables outside of me, but I control, control how I interpret those variables and how I cope with them at the same time. Um, we are stronger as a core, as a group. And so learning, um, figuring out what the local veterans need and honoring those individual and group characteristics is sort of the goal here. Um, And hopefully we can sort of um, really come to a consensus. And hopefully, you know, the the, uh, VA can support this. If not, we will find another way. We'll find a way. I'll I'll help you find
0: a way. It's awesome. It's an amazing uh, commitment to uh, the veteran community and to just th- people in general. It, you know, my favorite part about it is finding, you know, encouraging personal identity as it's written here. And, you know, my, what I try to tell veterans, especially from special operations is, and this goes along the lines for all veterans, is that veterans are unique because in a short period of time, they experience a lot of life. And so there's a lot of things to take away from that. And one of my favorite things, I think, in life and has given me a lot of purpose is communicating to civilians, um, communicating to people that my experiences and how I live that life, a, a lot of life in a short period of time, has changed me and changed others around me. And then taking the cliff notes of all those experiences and then figuring out a way to communicate it to people to make their lives better. Because the reality is, everybody is experiencing trauma. Everybody is experiencing self identity problems. The, the, every single day uh, the, this country goes in the direction it's going, the family unit's falling apart. We're losing our self identity. We're saturated with technology and, and, and losing ourselves. And so, uh, in this, I, I would think that I would love to communicate to veterans that they could be the advocates for people. You know, they could be the ones who stand on the pedestal and communicate to people to save our country because our country needs saving. And people in unique positions, not actors, not actresses, not athletes, um, they're not going to do it for us. It's people that have lived real lives and experienced real trauma and they've been resilient enough to get through it that are going to communicate to the pack and protect the herd and get us through this. I mean, that's 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 what I want veterans to know that they're capable of. And it's not just veterans, it's first responders. I mean, I have friends, you know, Mason, and all these guys that are just heroes to me that do it every single day. While I'm sleeping in bed, there's some hero out there getting in a gunfight with some, you know, shithead criminal and doing work. They are advocates for the human race. They need to come back and teach their experiences, which I encourage them to do, but they need to do it. And if we have this like, experience of you know, cycling through like, the primal realities of life, of trauma, of drama, of gunfights, of criminals, of violence, and then have somebody to communicate to the rest of us who are living complacent, then we we might be a better world. We might find a, or or strike a balance somewhere. I totally Sorry, that was a long tangent.
2: No, Sorry. no, no, Get, that was great. Um, I totally agree, Mike. And and I will say one thing that has helped me sort of understand. You know, in the last ten years of r- this sort of ridiculous educational trip, um, understanding this sort of. Um, we kind of talk about the criminal behavior. I did a full year in the uh, um, correctional system with what we call the DMI population, the dangerously mentally ill population, treating them, Um, understanding the why of their behavior. um, Helped me sort of see people in a broader light, in a more... um, empathetic light. And so I have less of a tendency, although I want, I love your your idea of the sort of veteran community, A, integrating into the civilian community, but B, sort of taking control of, of, of our own resilience and our own adaptability to, um, disintegration, uh, from ourselves as, as you kind of aptly put with the technology and the families uh, center, et cetera. Um, but, not necessarily emphasizing the us and them it's let's just it's cool let them let people do what they're going to do but let's just focus on us without being angry and um, externalizing against yep. the us or the them right because that's just that just fuels this ridiculous back and forth that isn't productive for anybody so let's just work on us mm-hmm. and, and integrate whoever whoever is okay with that and that will grow versus fueling this, this sort of back and forth between the P- us and them. It's,
0: it's, yeah, it's, it's toxic. It's the, it's the thing that's, that's hurting uh, our veteran communities the most. And it, it's, I mean, we it's a stereotype that's been created because the reality is the people are doing it, and you know, me and Kurt deal with it all, all the time. Uh, you know, the, well, one of the things that we deal with is the, the, I don't know if it's a stigma or if it's a stereotype of how they think special operations guys are. And there's those guys out there. They're just you know showboating. They have these big egos, and you know there's a difference between ego and confidence. And so um, I, I love this you know concentration on finding personal identity. And it, it seems like um, you know with the, the help of all these different things like art, like music, um, that encourage them to come out of their shell. They'll find it. And it's something that we'll always support and stand behind, and I, I can't wait to uh, figure out, um, you know, how we could be part of it because I'd love to be part of it. It's it's an amazing thing you're doing, man. I appreciate that.
2: Yeah, I just I I also on the other side of that, I I sincerely you know I when I look at how in you and Kurt sort of approach this fieldcraft, survival and fieldcraft fit, you guys kind of have this holistic approach to this self reliance and and um, but like I said, you guys really true without knowing it, you guys take this beginner mindset. Like, wait a minute. Yeah. We got, we got confidence. We've been there and done that, but we also know that we don't know everything. Yeah. That there's so much to learn. Like I can't, you know, I went through this process, um, a while I was in military, but B, when I went back into school, you know, I thought I knew my shit when I was in my undergrad and then I went into grad school and I found out I didn't know, I didn't know nothing. And then went and PhD and I find out that I don't know anything again. And so, but some people are, have a hard, real hard time with that. And I think you sort of hit the nail on the head with, I've been a veteran, I've deployed, I've been through combat, I've lived this concentrated dose of life. and But some people take that and extrapolate that into this, I know everything like about global warming and politics. And do, yeah. you, do, you, Absolutely, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. I know everything about foreign affairs because I deployed and went into combat. Like, yep. wait a second, there's, there's really Absolutely. a lot to
0: it. <laughs> see it all the time.
2: Right, and so it's like, let's take a step back. Let's teach each other because we have this opportunity, right, to to really integrate all of our skills into something really kind of significant. But unfortunately, occasionally, I think we take this sort of zero sum game approach where in order for me to excel, you can't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we're not doing what we're supposed to do when we're in, which is supporting one another. We are we are our own worst enemies. Absolutely, and we ugh, the toxicity that we that we've seen it's insane. Yeah. Hey, if you guys got any questions, um, I'm about to close out the podcast, but I'd love to hear any questions you guys have. Um, if you have the opportunity to ask, um, please do ask. Um, let me ask you one question while I'm waiting on somebody to ask a question. Um, what would you say is the number one tip for? Developing a resilient mind. Because, you know, some people, somebody just asked me recently, and I said, you know what, one of the ways you could exercise it is in physical exercise. Like if you do Cross Hit, for example, and they're breaking you past a point where you want to quit and you're getting through that, you're building a a semblance of a form of resiliency that's making you uh, mentally tougher and physically stronger. Is there something that you would recommend? I don't know mentally, and I don't know.
2: So let I, I you know since we're vets and we kind of move along this physical realm kind of first, even though we have a lot of psychology associated with it. Let's talk about physio, physio physiological resilience first. So, Somebody just
0: asked that exact question: Are some people physiologically more prone to stress?
2: Okay, yeah. So let's talk about that. You know, we kind of talked to, I kind of define physiological resilience as it's sort of the ability to go from homeostasis to very physiologically stressed out. Back to homeostasis. And we have a lot of different exercise modalities, right? A lot of people like bodybuilding. Well, bodybuilding doesn't have a whole lot of uh, physical or mental health, positive mental health outcomes, because as you can see, there are no professional sports teams that do bodybuilding. The military doesn't do bodybuilding. Um, and so people kind of uh, make themselves a little bit more fragile with this sort of bodybuilding approach of physiological resilience. But then we have, like you said, mentioned CrossFit, high intensity, high intensity interval training is absolutely empirically associated with increases to resilience because of exactly what you said, increased VO two max, uh, increased pain threshold, and then you kind of move intensely across different intervals, but you give yourself time to recover. Yeah. However, what's even, but it's also within a fixed environment that's temperature controlled. You can start and stop when you want. You can eat when you want. And the problems don't come at you all the time. Yeah. So take yourself and put yourself back out in the field, Mike. What is suggestive as being the most uh, adaptive routines for increasing neuroplasticity as well as physiological resilience are those activities that require you to A, Adapt to the environment. B, move across several, a length of time with moderate aerobic activity with problem solving requirements. So maybe we talk about mountaineering. Or rock climbing, or hiking, um, because you can't control those environments. You can't always eat when you gotta eat. You gotta filter water. You gotta plan for uh, building shelter. You gotta move across time points. Those are the things that really do well at building resilience, because you have to stay calm. You have to think. You have to prepare. You know, you you can't control everything.
0: Wow, that's that's crazy. Because is that you know the first thing that pops in my head is the word adventure, Mm -hmm. and when I hear the word adventure. I associate with all the things that you said, where you're problem solving, you're doing all these things. And whenever you come out of what you would deem, oh, that was epic, or, that was an adventure. It's like this journey that you went through where you most certainly come out on the other end more resilient. I mean, there's a we do leadership seminars and the last one we did, we took them camping and whitewater rafting and um, just put them outside their comfort zone and every single one of them which I didn't think they would. It would be a high impact uh, as far as you know on the brain and on the body. But they came out of it and they were just like, "That was insane. That that changed my life." And is that is that a component to it? Is there like a is there an association with these epic moments in our lives where we do something outside of our comfort zone? And that same experience in building resiliency, is that what it takes?
2: Right. It's that adaptation. You're stressing the organism and the organism finds out that it can handle that stress. It's like getting in the fight. The first time you got in a fight, the first time, super scary, right? Because you don't know if you actually know how to fight or not, but then you get hit. And then you realize, oh, holy shit, I'm not made of glass. I'm going to start hitting back, right? That sort of learning mechanism of stress, like, oh, I can do this. I can handle this. And- There's a great quote, and I don't remember who said it, but uh, I'm going to paraphrase: We're kind of built for adventure, and when we don't adventure, we sort of make drama out of these little stressors in life.
0: That's me into
2: an adventure,
0: right? Like we need that. We fall in love with the drama,
2: (laughs) right? Yeah, like we do. We kind of even at some point, I've even seen this this sort of replay by veterans that um, they're consistently still in but they're not really doing anything. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 <laughs> like they're yeah. They're not really
2: doing anything, but they're yeah. still dressing up like they are. Oh. Um, so... It's it's just this. Wait a minute. Let's step back. Let's let's reintegrate our, our identity, and we've got tons of stuff we can do here. Let's get outside and adapt to the environment. And we don't need a ton of food. We don't you know like stress ourselves together, and we can do, we can yeah. become more resilient. Yeah, but and yeah. it doesn't have
0: to be this crazy. It doesn't have to be a ranger school at all. Yeah, not at all. It could just be an experience. Exactly. Which we you know, man. That's a that's amazing. That makes me literally want. I go out in the woods and camp and do all these right. things because I know there's a reason why I always say, uh, looking back at it, man, that was such an amazing experience. And, or it's so healthy to get outside because yep. that's part of it, right? Cause we're building this layer of resiliency that's making us better.
2: Think about when you were in, um, and I, maybe you have this experience, maybe not, but pretty much every day when I wake up, there is a small part of me that misses being in
0: oh once 100 right every day yeah
2: but the reality is is probably 90 percent of that sucked
0: yeah montage <laughs> it and you're like oh i'm in the barracks this sucks like this yeah.
2: freaking sucks like dude yeah. i haven't had a decent meal in how long i can't remember the last time i showered you know i smell like a foot that's been stuck in a boot for and last it's
0: because time. it's you're looking back on it because of the uh The resiliency you build? Absolutely, right? And And like, oh man. Right. And then you
2: there's a little bit of a romanticize, there's a little bit of dissonance, right? There's a little bit of a of a it sucked. I must have had to do it because it was good. There's a little bit of that to it. But there is a little bit of that the experience that is just Awesome. Like, holy shit, I just lived through that. Or yep. I just, you know, I just, I just, I just did a 300 foot dive, you know, uh, looking for uh, salvage, et cetera. And that was gnarly in a two knot current. And, you know, all those things sort of increase our appreciation for life. But when we don't do it, when we sit our ass on the couch and we kind of do the same thing every day, we're sitting at homeostasis and we make drama out of little things.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. You just validated everything that I think in my head. I just don't say it <laughs> out loud. You're so smart, um, Jeff. Man, this is one of my favorite podcasts because I love. I I can geek out on this stuff, and I could talk for hours on this stuff. And um, I, you know, thank you, number one, for your service. Thank you for stepping up and you know getting the education. It took me 15 years to get my bachelor's. I can't imagine the amount of education that you're going through and still going through. And the commitment it takes to get to the point where you're at now and, you know, and you're still helping, you're still giving back, man. I appreciate your service just to people in general, man. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for coming out here. And I look forward to a lot more um, experiences and podcasts, you you'll probably be the most frequent guest, um, on the podcast. So, so thanks for that, man.
2: Mike, I appreciate you having me on. I, I thank you for you, you and Kurt and everybody here for your service. I, and I really, I honestly do appreciate you guys taking some time and coming back and, and we're going to work on giving back to vets. I mean, we, again, no man left behind doesn't stop, yeah. right? it, it just, it doesn't even make sense for me to stop. So um, I think we can do um, some significant good together if we work together and and incorporate those experience that you guys have, some education across the board. And I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic of what we can yeah, do. Yeah,
0: you've definitely found your purpose. That's it right there, man. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Yeah.